Well, hello. Good morning, everybody. Um, I have to say you guys are making me laugh this morning because uh, the whole back half of the uh, rows here were full, and then there was hardly anybody up in the front. Now I've got a few people, so thank you guys. Um, but I can't even be mad because when I'm not up here, I usually sit in the back too. It's just like a, I grew up sitting in the back, and the, I don't know, it's just... That's where I feel like I'm supposed to sit. So it just was making me laugh. It's very Minnesotan. Everybody's sitting in the back. No one wants to be up front and have attention on them. But hey, welcome. Thanks for coming, uh, especially if you're new or just visiting with us this morning. We are really glad that you're here. Uh, as Angela said, we are in an Advent series right now. So we are kind of talking about Christmas and the time that we get to reflect on the coming of Christ into the world. And so uh, we know that with Christmas coming up, there are a lot of other family obligations and different things. You might be traveling. So if you are, you know, gone this week or gone in a couple weeks, um, we just want to remind you that we do have our sermons online, on our podcast, and on YouTube. So if you have to be gone, you can still catch up uh, and worship with us during, uh, do it electronically. So yeah, we're excited about this Advent series. We have been talking about uh, something called the Magnificat, which is Mary's song. So uh, this happens in Luke chapter 1. And it's Mary, she has, after she's told that she's going to be the mother of God, she has this song of praise that she kind of bursts into. And so it's not a very long song, but it really gives us a lot to think about. And so we've been kind of working our way through that. And we're going to look at a couple more verses of that song today. And last week I mentioned that Studying Mary's song has actually really helped me see Mary in a new light. Uh, and I shared this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Let's see if I can get the clicker to work here. Ah. Uh, he said that um, the Magnificat, or Mary's song, is the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary hymn ever sung. And he wasn't the only one who thought that this song was revolutionary. Some countries, such as India, Guatemala, and Argentina, have outright banned the Magnificat at different times. So they're, un they're not allowed to recite it in liturgy or in public. And they did this because they were afraid it might start a, a revolution or a revolt. So it's a, it's a very revolutionary song and has been for many years. One modern writer says that when you read the lyrics of this carol, you sniff the powder of dynamite. So it's a, it's a very big thing for a young teenage girl to have said. So let's, let's dive into it. Let's see what all the fuss is about here and why it's so revolutionary. So I'm going to read from what we talked about last week. So it says, My soul glorifies, or that's that, magnifies, the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Now here we're getting into some of the new revolutionary stuff. She says, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. So like I said, it's a pretty different picture of the Mary that we normally get, right? We normally get the sweet, young, quiet, obedient girl who just kind of is in the background of the story. 
Um, and there's actually an artist, his name is Ben Wildflower, who grew up in the church. He was, you know, heard the Christmas story over and over again. But once he finally started to look at the Magnificat, he realized that this picture of Mary didn't really quite do her justice. And so he created a new image. He just um, grabbed a piece of wood from an outside of a construction site. He felt so compelled to do this. And he created a new image of Mary. And you can see that it's a little bit more revolutionary. She's not quietly sitting there. Uh, she's got her arm raised to the sky, and she's got her foot on a snake or the serpent. Um, and she's staring up at the heaven, fist raised to the sky, and you've got some of those words from the Magnificat on there. So where did these words come from? Where did this revolutionary, uh, inspired song come from? Ultimately, it came from God, right? We'll say that. But there's also another source that Mary seems to be drawing on when she's talking about this. So the themes and the ideas come from another song in the Old Testament. So back in the Old Testament, in the book of 1 Samuel, there's another woman whose name was Hannah. And Hannah was struggling with infertility at the time. And because for women in that time period, being able to have babies and produce heirs was such an important and valuable thing, she was being mocked because she couldn't produce an heir. She really struggled. Other women around her were mocking her and uh, provoking her. And she just felt like she wasn't living up to these different things that society had for her. And she just wanted a baby. She wanted to be able to have a baby. So she prayed earnestly to the Lord. She was praying so earnestly that other people around her actually thought she was drunk. That's pretty intense prayer right there. Uh, and God answered her prayer. She has a child who's a son. And instead of keeping him for herself, she actually dedicates him to serve the Lord, which at the time meant that he would stay there in the temple. He would live there and learn about how to serve God. And after she does this, she prays a prayer of rejoicing in God's faithfulness. And this prayer actually has very uh, many similarities to Mary's song. So I put it together in a little chart. Um, it's, it might be a little bit hard to read because it's small font, but I wanted you to kind of be able to see some of the um, similarities. So Hannah's prayer starts by saying, my heart rejoices in the Lord. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Uh, she goes on to say, for I delight in your deliverance. Um, Mary says, my spirit rejoices in God, my savior or my deliverer. She says, there's no one holy like the Lord. Mary says, holy is his name. She says, do not keep talking so proudly, for the Lord is a God who knows. It's kind of a warning against pride. Mary says that he is going to scatter those who are proud. Hannah says, the bows of the warrior are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. So you get kind of this like strong, weak comparison there. And then Mary says, he's bring down the rulers from their thrones, but lift up the humble. Again, that same type of comparison. And then she says, those who were full hire themselves out for food, and those who are hungry are hungry no more. And then we obviously get the same thing in Mary's song when she says, he has filled the hungry with good things, but he sent the rich away empty. So you see that it's not like Mary's directly quoting, right? There's not any part of this that would need to have the, the quotation marks around it, that she's actually taking word for word from Hannah's song. Uh, but there's a lot of similarities. And it's thought that Mary was probably so um, steeped in the Old Testament, she probably knew it so well because that was the culture, they learned it, they spoke it, they, they listened to it all the time, that when she was put in a similar situation where she was praising God for this child she was given, her mind probably immediately went to the prayer of Hannah and probably drew on some of those different ideas and themes. 
So you think about the similarities here. You've got, they both had miraculous children or somewhat unexpected children. Hannah was unable to conceive uh, until the Lord answered her prayer and Mary was a virgin. They both had boys who would later be dedicated to the Lord's service. They would have to somewhat give up their children so that they could serve the Lord. And they both responded with these songs of almost prophetic praise, right? They're seeing this bigger picture of what God is doing in the world and not just in their own lives. And so that's the thing I want to focus on today is that thing that both Hannah and Mary seem to see. They seem to have this insight into what God is doing in the world. And that is that he's bringing about an upside-down kingdom where it's not the outer things that matter, the outer metrics of success, uh, but the inner spiritual realities. It's the heart that matters. So what does that mean, an upside-down kingdom? It's just a phrase that people like to use. Uh, It's like the idea of a reversal, right? So it's a reversal of the kingdom we live in now. And you might be thinking, well, we don't live in a kingdom, right? We don't have like a, a monarch or a main ruler. But the world that we live in still has these cultural power dynamics, right? There are certain things that make people more powerful, or maybe they have more privilege in certain areas, so they have more influence or more strength. Sometimes that's money, job, status, that kind of stuff. Um, And these things kind of signify for the world what we worship, what we see as uh, leaders, as rulers, and that kind of a thing. And Jesus comes to flip that, right? He's creating an unexpected, upside-down kingdom where all of those cultural metrics are reversed. And that was the truth that Hannah experienced. She had been looked down upon. She had been mocked. She had been feeling inferior or seen as less than because she didn't have children. And that was the metrics of success for the women in that time period. And she prays, and in response, God sees her. He sees the pain she's in, and he responds, and he gives her a child. And as a result, right, he cares for the people who are lowly like Hannah, and Hannah sees that and sees this bigger picture of what God is doing. Same thing with Mary, right? We talked last week about how Mary recognizes that she is undeserving to be the mother of God, right? She's this lowly woman who has no money, no power, no prestige. She's someone who needs a savior, and yet God chooses her because he doesn't look at the outward metrics of success, but he's looking at the heart. He's looking at the inner spiritual realities. As both Hannah and Mary talk about in their songs, he scatters the proud, he brings down those in power, but he lifts up the humble and fills the hungry, but sends away the rich. And we see this even in the way Jesus is born, right? He comes into the world in a barn. (laughs) And this is not like, you know, I know barn weddings are like a cool thing now because they're like trendy and like you decorate them all nice. That's not what this was, right? He was born in a barn because they couldn't find anywhere else to be. So he came into the world in a lowly way with no-name parents who uh, were likely looked down upon, right? Because this whole idea that Mary was pregnant without being married, and I'm sure not many people believed her that she <laughs> conceived with the Holy Spirit, right? I'm sure they're like, yeah, okay, that's, that's an interesting theory. But God comes into the world in this way. He's already bringing about this upside-down kingdom in the way that he comes into the world. So does this mean then, right, like Mary and Hannah are focusing on the lowly, the people who are, are not in power, does that mean that God only comes to the, into the world for those people or that he only cares about those who are low in status or don't have power or money? 
um, or reputation. And when we look at the rest of the Christmas story, some of the events that happen after Jesus' birth, we see that the answer is no. He also comes and reveals himself to some people who are in power. So we're going to look at two different people here. Um, we're going to do a little case study on how these people who do have power and influence respond. So two of those people are King Herod and then the Magi or the wise men. So we'll start with Herod. He was a king who liked to go by Herod the Great, uh, beginning to see a pattern with these guys, right? We talked about Alexander the Great when we were in Daniel. All these people, they think they're really cool and they want everybody else to know it. Uh, but he had all the standard outward realities that people, people would typically think of when they think of success, right? He was powerful, he had prestige, he had money, he had influence. Uh, and when he heard about Jesus being born and that some people were saying that he, Jesus would grow up to be the king of the Jews and fulfill all these prophecies, he got a little worried, felt a little threatened that this kid might grow up to have more power than him. So he tells the Magi, he's like, hey, why don't you go find this kid and you, you go worship him and then come back and tell me so that I can go worship him. That's not actually what he's thinking, but that's what he tells them. But the truth is that he's threatened by the idea of another king who is supposed to be great, right? He's like, hey, I already claimed it. It's in my name. I am the great. Uh, and because his power and his wealth and his success are so important to him, he's willing to kill anybody who might get in his way. On the other hand, the other people we're going to look at are the magi, and they respond differently. So I know that the wise men are often portrayed as kings, right? There's the whole song, We Three Kings. Uh, but that's probably not the best title for them. They weren't actually kings in the same way that Herod was a king. They were still important, powerful people in the time, but they were more like astrologers. And that made them important because in that time period, people thought that astrological wonders accompanied important political events. So the Magi were kind of like these political advisors. They hung out around the powerful people and sort of advised them as to what they should do based on how they interpret these astrological signs. And now here's something that's really interesting and ties into the book of Daniel, which we just finished studying. So if you've been here with us, you know that we've been talking about that uh, for most of the fall. So if you think back to the time of Daniel, there was a group of people that advised the king at that time, right? And they list off like the magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, that whole group. And they were the political advisors, and the Magi would have probably been a part of that group. One of those words actually is the same word that is used when they talk about Magi. And if you think about it, so Daniel, back in that time, at one point, he was kind of put over um, as the like, chief advisor, right? He was the one who was kind of over that group of people who helped advise the king. And we don't know for sure. We don't know that much about the Magi. There's like a very short, the description of them that we get in the book of Matthew is like, they came from the east. Okay, super helpful. That doesn't give us any information about who they are, what they did, where they came from. Um, but as people have thought about it and done some more research, they actually think that they might have come from Babylon. And so if you think back to this connection with Daniel, Daniel was in charge of these um, political advisors, these sorcerers, these magicians, and he probably had all of these writings um, that he had written and different pieces of scripture that he had you know, acquired from that time that he would have given to these people that he oversaw. So that's possibly how they came in contact with the Jewish scriptures 
And through that, they heard about a promise or a prophecy that at some point there would be a star that would come out of Judah and that this would be the um, event that would signify that this king of the Jews, this deliverer king, is coming. And so it's kind of, I know it's kind of a tangent, but it's just a cool connection to see that the Magi might have heard about or known to go and see Jesus because of something that Daniel had done way back, you know, however many years before that. So anyways, again, kind of a tangent, but I just get excited when you can see all the ways that scripture connects and you see this bigger story that God's unfolding. So these Magi, they see the star and they see it as a political uh, or an astrological event that probably signified something political that was coming. And they, after studying these scriptures, thought, hey, this might be that Jewish king that's coming. We should go see him and go worship him. And now, I think a lot of times we think like, oh, wow, they came and worshiped Jesus. That's so cool that they were, you know, stepping out to go worship a, a Jesus as the new king. But the truth is that that was kind of their job. <laughs> they went around to see these new kings when they were born. Magi went to go, some group of them, probably not the same group, but some of them went to go see Herod when he was born, right? This was what they did, is they went around to see these different political rulers as they were uh, coming onto the scene. So that's maybe not the, the part that's so impressive about the Magi. But the thing that is impressive is that uh, after they're there, they have a dream, they're warned in a dream, that uh, they should not go back to Herod and tell him where Jesus is. Now, if they had gone back to Herod, they probably could have gotten a like promotion, basically, right? Herod's a really powerful dude. And if they had done what Herod asked and you know gotten on his good side, they could be a part of this king's advisor group and then kind of had like a status update or a promotion of some sort. They could have had his influence and his power. But they decide not to. This is the part that's impressive. This is what sets the Magi apart from Herod and how they respond to Jesus coming into the world. God is working in their hearts and they decide to turn down this possible promotion, this possible advancement of their own career, of their own power, because they think that Jesus is the true king. They realize that Jesus is the one with the power and the prestige. Maybe not in the traditional sense, right? I'm sure they were surprised when they went to go worship this king that they thought was going to be a huge deal, and it was in a barn surrounded by animals and people they'd never heard of, right? I'm sure that wasn't their normal uh, visit to new kings. And yet they still thought, this is the true king. This is the one I want to worship. I'm going to trade my opportunity to gain promotion or status for myself for the chance to worship Jesus and the real king. So we see that with the wise men, following Jesus actually requires letting go of some of those opportunities to gain more power. Because the truth is that Jesus does come for everybody. He doesn't come just for the lowly, but he comes for the powerful too. But it's harder for the powerful to sometimes follow him because they think that they already have everything they need, right? Last week we talked about you have to, have your, you have to feel your need for a savior in order to truly celebrate Jesus' birth and to truly um, rejoice in it the way that Mary did. And people who have all the things that they want or need, they have the power, they have the money, it's harder for them to say, I need something else outside of me, Right? And then because they think they have everything they need, holding on to what they already have feels like the biggest priority. And then eventually, because what they have isn't actually going to be fulfilling in the way that following Jesus would be, they feel like they need to have more. 
So it becomes this thing about trying to hold on to what you already have or even to gain more, right? More money, more status, more power, instead of being willing to give some of that up in order to follow Jesus. So the wise men, they pass up that promotion because they've had an inward change of heart. And they believe that Jesus is the true and better king than Herod. But because Herod already had this, he wasn't willing to acknowledge that somebody else might be more powerful than him. In fact, it drove him to commit mass murder trying to kill Jesus because he was threatened by him. So we see what Mary's talking about here, right? We see that he scatters the thoughts of the proud. He's going to bring down rulers and lift up the humble. And it's not that God inherently loves the lowly, the hungry, the humble more than he loves the rulers, the rich, and the powerful. He loves them all. He came for everybody. But in order to follow Jesus, you have to let him be your savior and your Lord. And he's not just turning things upside down just to shake things up, right? Like, let's just, you know, see what happens if I, you know, turn everything that's normal on its head. He's doing it because that's what happens when you follow Jesus. The things that used to be important to you, the things that you valued and, you know, maybe in culture or in life are no longer your top priority. Following Jesus and being like him, spreading his message and being his ambassador becomes your priority. And Jesus modeled this not only in his humble birth in the barn, but he continued to do it through his life. He showed us the ultimate example of it in his death. He didn't hoard his power. He didn't use it for his own advantage or his own security. In fact, he grows up to give his life and death so that anybody who believes in him can have life. That's the type of king that the wise men were worshiping. That's the type of king that Herod was threatened by. And it's the type of king that Mary rejoiced over. And it's the king that we get to worship, right? It's the one that we get to celebrate this Christmas and the, his coming into the world. So as we start to think about application, the first thing I want us to look at is rejoicing like Mary and Hannah did. And that might require us to widen our view of Christmas a little, right? It's not just that Jesus came into the world because he needed to save individual sinners like us, which is true, he did. That is one very important aspect of it. But he also came in to bring about a totally new way of doing things, a new kingdom that's upside down from the one that we're used to, a kingdom that doesn't value the things of the world, the outer metrics of success, but it values the heart. And he came into the world for everybody, no matter your race, your gender, your social or economic class, Jesus came for you. And we should rejoice over that, right? Whether you're feeling low for some reason, whether it's because of one of those uh, identity markers or because of some cultural metric of success that you feel like you're not meeting, if you're feeling low, if you're feeling like Hannah or feeling like Mary, this is your chance to rejoice this Christmas, right? Jesus came to change that. He came uh, for the people who are not meeting the status quo. He came to reverse that. And maybe if you're not feeling that personally, uh, it's pretty hard to not feel that about the world, right? If you turn on the news and you see all the things that are happening, all the injustice that's in the world, whether it's racism or, you know, school shootings, there's, I don't know, there's so many things you can turn on the news and it's like, man, this world sucks sometimes, but Jesus came in to fix that. That's part of what we celebrate at Christmas, is that he came to change that. He came to right the wrongs that are happening in our world, to change the injustice. And he does it all by giving his own life. And this is where Advent gets interesting, because we wait and celebrate his coming into the world as a baby, right? That happened in the past. 
And yet we're also waiting for something that's still to come. Because even though this new kingdom has come and is here now and has changed us as individuals, we still live in a broken world. And not everybody has seen that new reality. And so we wait for the day when Jesus will come back and the whole world will worship him. And the whole earth will be transformed into that new kingdom. And here's the thing, so for us as we think about what does it look like to live in that tension, I think it's important for us to live as if we know that that's true now. So some people call this tension the already, not yet, if you've ever heard that phrase. So it's already, we already know that Jesus is building his kingdom now, that he has come, that he is changing things, and we already know that one day he's going to come back and make everything right. And yet we live in this not yet, where it's not fully happened yet. Not all the things have been righted. Not everything has been made new. And so how do we live like that, right? This is how do we practice that in our daily lives? And there's an analogy or kind of a picture that's been helpful to me in thinking about that. And it's a group of people from the 1960s called the Freedom Riders. Not writers like the movie, but riders with an R. So back in 1960, um, the Supreme Court ruled that segregated buses were unconstitutional. But the problem was, is that in the South, the people there basically pretended that that ruling never happened. And so even though there had been a change, legally there was a change, buses had to be uh, not segregated. People lived as if that wasn't true in certain areas of the country. So it was really hard still for certain members of the community to be able to ride the buses uh, and to not be discriminated against or um, abused in any kind of way. And so in 1961, there was this group of people who were like, all right, we need to live as if this is already true. We need to do something about this. And so they came together, and this group was called the Freedom Riders. And what they did is they came together as a community, and they said, we're going to ride these buses. Even though we might get discriminated, even though it might be hard and people are going to be against us, we're going to live in the truth that has already uh, legally happened. They knew what had already been happened, what was true of the world, and they decided to walk in that truth, even though it might be difficult. And I think as Christians, we feel some of that similar tension, right? We live in a world that we know is already changed, right? We know what Jesus is doing, and yet not everybody recognizes that. And so we need to come together as a church and live as if it's true. We need to walk in the truth of what Jesus has already done. So our second application point is that we need to live the upside-down kingdom all the time. And I think the interesting thing about Christmas is that we like to kind of live some of those things out around Christmas time, right? There's an increase in, like, generosity and service and love, and there's all these things that people kind of come together around these ideas that we would say, yeah, this is part of the new kingdom that Jesus is bringing into the world. But as Christians, we shouldn't only engage in those activities at Christmas time, right? We don't, you know the people who think that Valentine's is a dumb holiday because they're like, you should show your significant other that you love them all the time, all year round. There shouldn't be just a holiday that shows that. And so they think Valentine's is stupid because of that. Let's not let people think that Christmas is stupid because it's the only time that Christians truly live out the values they say they profess. Right? Let's live this out every day of the year, not just in Christmas time where it's more culturally um, accepted to be generous or to be loving or to serve others. We need to come together and live as if we believe that all people 
uh, are made in the image of God. That all people have dignity, whether they have wealth or the different status markers that come along with our society. We need to treat everyone the same and treat them with love. All right, and then our third application point is that kind of more towards if you're not feeling low, if you are feeling pretty comfortable with your current life, I think it's time that we examine uh, some of the things that might distract us from worshiping God, right? So we had these two examples. We had the example of Herod, and we had the example of the wise men. Both of them felt pretty comfortable with their current life. They weren't feeling low like Hannah and Mary, and yet they responded very differently, One group of them chose to worship Jesus as king and give up some of their power in order to do that. And one of them chose to cling even tighter to the power that they had. So if you are feeling pretty comfortable, Christmas provides a unique opportunity to examine those distractions. Partly because the world just kind of slows down and your regular schedule changes at Christmas time usually. You might have time off of work. You might be spending more time with family. You might have um, travel, different things. And any time we have kind of a break from our regular routine, gives us a chance to kind of examine how we respond to those changes. So as I, I want to just give you a few examples that I think Christmas can bring up ways to examine things that might be distracting us from worshiping Jesus. So one of them is money, right? At Christmas time, we spend more money, generally speaking. Sometimes we spend it on gifts for other people, which is great. Sometimes you might be spending it on food if you're hosting or if you're bringing food along with to different gatherings. You might be spending money on travel. There's lots of different ways that we end up spending more money at this time of year than we might at other times. And now I'm all for having a budget and being wise with your money. Don't hear me not say that. (laughs) But I do want to say, if it makes you uncomfortable, if spending that extra money on gifts or feeling that extra tightness that you might have to be generous at this time of year... If it makes you uncomfortable, take a minute to examine that. And I'm not saying you have to spend a ton of money at Christmas, but I think our security can be something that uh, becomes one of those things that we feel like we have to hold on to. And then because every time we feel like, okay, now I feel secure, we feel like, oh, now I have to have a little bit more to feel secure and a little bit more. And so it can become one of these things that can distract us from worshiping Jesus because we're so focused on holding on to our own security. So just take a moment to think about that. I'm not saying that the true way to worship Jesus is to spend a ton of money at Christmas. That's not what I'm saying. But I think it gives us a unique opportunity to examine these things that might distract us. Or maybe it's work, right? Around Christmas time, you usually take some time off from work. Maybe your office is closed. I know someone was telling me that their office, like, turns off the heat so that they're like, do not come in. (laughs) Go home. Um, And maybe that makes you uncomfortable, right? You know, maybe examine, how often do I feel the need to check my email, even though I'm with my family or I'm not uh, supposed to be working right now? Do I feel like I still need to be getting ahead, like I need to, you know, work extra hard now so I can be ahead of everybody else I work with? What is it that's distracting you from focusing on worshiping Jesus as a true king? What things that you're comfortable with, those pieces of power or security, you're not willing to give up? Or maybe it's appearances, right? Usually around Christmas time, you're going to spend some time with your family, and your family has known you since you were in diapers. And so maybe they're not as impressed with you, right? You know, maybe your friends have seen you, and they think, wow, they're really successful at their job, and they're really good at this, and, you know, they always look cute and whatever. Your family knows. They've seen you at the times when you're not. And if that makes you uncomfortable, maybe it's time to examine that a little bit. 
Maybe it's time to ask, why is that so important to me? Why do I need to hang on to that so tightly? Is it something that I'm unwilling to give up in order to worship Jesus? Maybe it's Instagram and making sure you have the the perfect post, right, with your Christmas uh, clothing and you can have the perfect caption describing how great your year was, whatever it is. If it's distracting you from worshiping Jesus, it's time to examine those pieces of power and influence and security that maybe we're not willing to give up. Because ultimately, we don't want to be like Herod, right? We don't want to miss the opportunity to worship the true king. We don't want to be so focused on hanging on to our own power that we can't see that the one with true power, the one who is truly the best ruler, is right in front of us and asking us to come and to worship him. So as we move into a time of communion um, and worship through song and other things, I want us to think about that. Want us to examine the things in our life that might prevent us from rejoicing that Jesus is coming to turn this world upside down. And then when we do that, we get to reflect, and then we can see that Jesus, no matter what we struggle with, no matter what things we have a hard time letting go of, Jesus is still there for us, right? He died for our sins because we need a Savior. So let go of those sins, uh, ask for forgiveness, and turn to him knowing that he has given you grace, and you do not need to feel guilt about any of these things, but that he is calling you to worship him um, in grace and in love. So I'm going to pray for us, uh, and the worship team is going to come up. While we do communion, we will be worshiping at the same time, so feel free to come and take communion at any time during the two songs that they're going to play. Um, We just ask that you're a follower of Jesus, that you have said that he is your Lord and Savior, Um, and even though maybe you don't live that out every single day, that you believe that and you have uh, called on him for forgiveness of sin. We're also going to have someone in the back if you'd like to pray for anything at all. Um, It can be a prayer request or a praise too, right? We can rejoice together over the things that God is doing. And lastly, if you'd like to give, we see that as a response to God as well, you can do that in the back. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we will continue to worship through communion and uh, singing. Lord, we rejoice that you are willing to humble yourself and come and live in this broken world with us. You've demonstrated your love and care for us and not considering your power something to be used for your own advantage, but rather being willing to take on the nature of a servant to become our Savior. Lord, we ask that you would form us into people who are willing to do the same, that we would see all people as you do, we would love and serve them in the same way that you have served us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Julie.